Hello, peace lovers, peacemakers, and those who appreciate healthy conflicts. This uh, program is for you. Welcome to Peace Mindedly. I'm Sarah Jamshidi and managing this program today. This podcast show uh, is the subsection of the website I manage with a group of international correspondents. I manage goldtune.com, Goldtune News, and there we write about lifestyle and we do lots of stories all around the world from Dubai to Istanbul to London, many cities, many countries. And we cover travel, we cover fashion, we do book reviews and many amazing um, stories that we do publish on regular basis on Goldtune. do have a very, very special guest. Honestly, I am very excited about the guest that I have and I interview and I'm going to learn so much from her for uh, for today's program. She is Lale Bakhtiar. Dr. Bakhtiar is a licensed counselor in psychotherapy, has more than 30 years practicing the profession. She is retired lecturer of the University of Chicago and prolific author. She is a prolific author. If you search Lale's name on Amazon.com, you will find more than 250 titles under her name on author's page on Amazon.com. I know I know Dr. Bakhtiar for many, many years. I've seen her many times and I interviewed her. She is absolutely a kind, generous intellectual who does challenge some of the some of my own beliefs about the religion that I believe basically she questions she questions and she has she goes after the answer and she studies she has translated the Quran and she has so many books under her name but the, for, the, for the purpose of this program I am so much interested in talking uh, with her about her latest book which uh, is quite mouthful so please bear with me it is the earliest commentary of upon the Quran according to the fourth rightly guided Caliph Ali ibn Abi Talib uh, from his sermons, letters, and sayings arranged by Sharif Razi in the Najjal Balagh. I am welcoming Dr. Bakhtiar. Hello, hello, hello Lale. Thank you so much, Sarah. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to have you. Lale, we are going to talk about the 12 statements and what happened with those statements in Nahjul Balagha and how it's really denigrating women and and women's states um, throughout the text. But before going there, for just setting the ground for some of the listeners and viewers who do not know these concepts, I would like you to please tell us who is Ali ibn Abi Talib and what is Nahjul Yes. Thank you, Sada. Thank you so much for having me. Ali ibn Abi Talib was the fourth rightly guided caliph after the death of the prophet. He was the fourth one uh, chosen by the people. And he's also, according to the Jafari school of law, the first imam. He was married to the prophet's daughter, Fatima. And then in the spiritual world, all of the traditional 40 Sufi orders trace their lineage back to Ali ibn Abi Talib, and then, of course, to the prophet. So he has, a, you know, a, both a political biography and also a, a religious one and theological, and then also very, very spiritual role to play in the whole history of Islam. And what is Nahjul Balagh? 
the Nadjo Balaghe was a collection in the 13th century of all of his sermons and sayings and letters called the Peaks of Eloquence in English or the Path of Eloquence. So, yeah, I've always heard the Arabic and the Farsi. Now you are translating and it's even uh, sounds more beautiful. Mm. So why do we call it eloquence? What's the reason? Well, the reason is because he wrote, of course, he lived just at the time of the prophet. He lived with the prophet. He grew up with the prophet and his wife. So it's the earliest source that we have sayings and the sermons and so forth. Uh, sermons, of course, when he became the fourth rightly guided caliph, but uh, and his sayings and his letters. So uh, it's very he he plays a very important role from the very very beginning of Islam because he lived with the prophet. He heard the prophet recite the Quran, the uh, received the revelation. Then he was literate. He wrote it down, and so he is um, very much attached to the Quran. And then you you sent me quite a handful of studies to do last night, and I was just reading and absolutely taken by, uh, enjoying, and at the same time, so frustrated over the 12 statements that has been attributed to Imam Ali. So can you tell us, uh, or if you, if you know any of those statements, to explain some of those? Yes. Well, let me start with the fact that uh, there have been over a hundred, hundreds of commentaries on the Najibaloghe over the centuries. And there have been several women who have written uh, studies, Amina Enoles and As- Asmar Jafari, Noor Khair. These, but these women have studied the Najibaloghe in relation to Hadith. So what I did was I looked at the Najibaloghe and I had read a Hadith of the Prophet that said Ali is with the Quran and the Quran is with Ali. And they will be together until they meet me at the pool in paradise. So I wanted to say to see, well, okay, I was kind of a hypothesis. Does the Najibaloghe reflect the Quran? And since I had translated the Quran, I put the Najibaloghe into the Quran, whereas all of the other commentaries have taken the Quran and put it into the Najibaloghe. So for me to be able to show the relationship between his sermon sayings and letters and the Quran, I had to put them into the Quran. And in doing so, I found that there was absolutely no place and for you to be able to make that these 12 statements that not only denigrate Ali Ali, Ali ibn Abi Talib as a paragon of justice, but denigrate all women. And there is no way that he would have said these statements. So obviously they're spurious. Obviously they were added over time to lessen his uh, love, the love that people have for him, and at the same time to get denigrate all women. So you would have thought over the centuries, somebody would have said, well, no, he wouldn't have said these things. But in order to perpetuate the idea that women are scorpions, venom, or the idea that, you know, you don't ask women for, don't listen to women's advice and so forth and so on. In order to perpetuate these statements, they continue to print them in the Najibaloghe and to teach them. So uh, I realized that I needed, uh, as with the Quran, when I, I did not have any footnotes or any paragraph openings or something to, di- to disturb the reading from the actual text. So in this case, I wanted to do the same thing. So I wrote an introduction where I explain 
all of these 12 points and how they have denigrated women and how they could not have been true and Ali could not have said them. So, you, can you share at least one or two of those yes, statements? Yes. So the, the worst one is in Sermon 79 in some editions and Sermon 80 in other editions. And there it says that women's, women are deficient in faith, deficient in witnessing, and deficient in shares. They're deficient in faith because they have a menstrual cycle, which means they're not going to be able to pray as much as the men supposedly pray. And they're deficient as witnesses because there is one verse that says, if you can't find one man, then find two women, and the second one will remind her. And the third is in regard to shares of inheritance, where the Quran points out that male children receive more twice as much as female children. So then I go through and explain each one of these and prove very clearly that these could not have been statements made by Ali ibn Abi Talib and what is wrong with them. So I will start with Sermon 80. And in particular, the since we have a limited time, I will speak about the first one. They're deficient in faith because of their menstrual cycle. So I have some of the women's articles had pointed out, they point out also that women begin the prayer in Islam at the age of nine. So they have six years ahead of men that they've been praying. Secondly, they around the age of 50, 45, 50, they have menopause. And then they pray all the time until their death. And sometimes women live longer than men. So sometimes they're praying a lot more. So their faith cannot be deficient because of the, of the menstrual cycle. In addition, the reason why God gave them a menstrual cycle was that they would have a much more important job to play, a much more important role to play in life, which is to preserve society. Because what happens is when a woman gets pregnant, what blood that would go to her menstrual cycle feeds the baby. So that's the whole point of having a menstrual cycle is that the ba a baby is going to be able to live and, and grow uh, and if she on the blood of the woman. So, and then in doing this research, very interesting study that I had done in the Quran, there is a verse that says that God breathed his spirit into Adam. And according to Al-Tabari, who is a famous commentator on the Quran, he says that immediately after God breathed his spirit into Adam, he called forth the progeny or children of Adam. He called forth their generative organs of all of humanity. That means of every human being that was ever born or will be born, their generative organs were asked a question, am I not your Lord? And they responded, Alasto, yes, you are our Lord. So we have all in, in another world bore witness to God as uh, the, to the spirit of God within us. Now, what happens is that within the male child, the male child is not born with the semen. He is born with the reproductive organs so that later in life, when he reaches puberty, he's able to, his body is able to manifest the semen. But a woman is born with all of the eggs that she's ever going to have for in terms of having children. So that means that her eggs were within her generative organs at the time of that covenant. So a woman in her eggs carries the spirit of God. Therefore, those people in pre-Islamic Arabia 
who slaughtered the young girls, uh, killed the uh, children, the women, female children. And those, for instance, in China who had a one-child uh, policy and were murdering all of these females. And those are in India where they had the sonogram and if it was a girl, they aborted the baby. All of those were killing the spirit of God. And then why? Then we wonder why nature now re responds to us in this way. Well, look at what we're doing to the spirit of God when we denigrate women. So to take those stories and to take these 12 statements and to denigrate women and also to denigrate Ali's uh, sense of justice uh, is absolutely outrageous. So the people who continue, and I challenge, I challenge anyone to do what I did and to try to find any verse in the Quran where any of these 12 statements would fit. And they won't be able to, just as I was not able to. So that's why the traditional commentaries put the Quran into the Najo Balaghe instead of putting the Najo Balaghe into the Quran, because what are they going to do with these 12 statements that denigrate Ali and all women? They say all women. It's not just one woman. It's not just some women. And then they say it was one woman. Well, that one woman, Ali ibn Abi Talib, in another sermon, says that he forgave her for her going to battle against him and that he made sure that she was sent back to her home with a very on, in a very honorable way. So why are we hanging on to this that we're supposed to hate somebody? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Uh, we're, you know, we're supposed to be peace loving people. We're supposed to be fair and just people. And then when we do things or we keep perpetuating hatred of somebody when, which doesn't deserve it because Ali himself forgave this one woman. So in most cases, it's, it refers to all women. As I said, it says, for instance, don't ask women for advice. And if they give it, don't listen. And if they give it, you know, do the opposite of it. Well, this has denigrated women for centuries, for centuries, these ideas. And there's no way that Ali ibn Abi Talib would have said this. Then what happened was, 200 years after Ali's life, after the death of the prophet, they, they compiled the hadith. So they're, two, they're 200 years behind, and then they're compiling these. And in the hadith, they now put the same words that women are deficient in faith and so forth into the mouth of the prophet of Islam. So again, it's trying to perpetuate this idea that there's something wrong with women. Why? And why do you think? I mean, why this is happening? It, it's because the of the well, you know, what's traditionally called. I mean, today called the patriarch, and the idea that actually men are in a way. Some people like Sachiko Morata in her great book, The Dao of Islam, says that men are actually afraid of women that they do this. But I have to say, in my life. I have the most wonderful men in my life, my son, my grandson, my father, my brother. Uh, I've never, ever experienced any of this from my for myself. That's why I'm so adamant about it, that no one else should have to either. So mm -hmm. the, these are so I could have gone into, you know, the witnessing and then also the shares. But the main one that I had wanted to point out was the one about the menstrual cycle, which is totally un scientific and doesn't make any sense so here is what i'm thinking after i was reading the texts and after i was just preparing myself for the show you know you and i know iran 
and we know um, what's happening inside Iran. I was a reporter, court reporter back in uh, Tehran. And then, you know, words are important, very, very important. Those words has been sh shaped into some kind of laws and Sharia, and they've been practiced in practice, in, in Tehran, I was in court and I was just uh, watching the woman is crying her heart out of not being able to um, uh, receive the custody or, you know, so embarrassed of her signature being just half the signature of a man. So the things that because of those words, many, many steps has taken to, uh, to implement those words. So I'm just thinking that, um, so I want to get your impression that words are important. So therefore we need to, we need to pay attention to those words. Exactly. Well, it's not just Iran. I mean, Saudi Arabia is yeah. outrageous in the way that they treat women. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of across the uh, Muslim spectrum that I'm sure there are some places where it's a little bit better for women. But it's because they have misinterpreted the, uh, the, the Quran and misinterpreted the, something like the Najib al which is the third most important source. First, you have the Quran, then you have the Hadith, and the, and which includes, of course, the Sira. And then you have, for instance, the Najib al in terms of early text to be able to study. So but they, they, these people who continue to perpetuate these ideas which we know that Imam Ali, Ali ibn Abi Talib, the fourth rightly guided caliph, could not have said because he would not have been a fair and just person if he had said these things. So they, they have misinterpreted because yes. of agenda. Yes. Well, they haven't he, not misinterpreted. They inserted falsely into the text yes. in order to denigrate women and in order to denigrate Ali. So they falsely added these things. And over the centuries, you would have thought somebody said, would have looked at it and said, well, no, wait a minute. How could a fair and just person say something like this, that women are scorpion venom? I mean, how can you say such a thing? So, so Lala, why other people are not questioning the same very thing? Well, it's because we don't speak out. Hmm. We need to have more women speak out, more women scholars, more women writing books, more women objecting. Uh, to being treated like this and to, uh, having sayings like this. So we, we, we know, I mean, our intelligence tells us that this is an unjust, this is unjust statement. When you say all women, we all know some women who we could say were, for instance, whatever, but all women, no, there's no way. So there's a verse in the Quran, it's in chapter six, verse 68. And it says, do not sit with the unjust. So what this is telling us as women is that do not sit in the classes of those people who continue to state these statements, who continue to teach the Najo Valore with these statements in it, who are not willing to remove the 12 statements and uh, don't sit with them because the Quran says, don't sit with the unjust. It just breaks your heart. It just makes you feel less and a victim and inferior. Okay, don't sit with them. Sit with a woman teacher. Sit with someone who's willing to take a step not to have these 12 statements. That, that, that would be what I would say. Yes, but we are talking about the, the male-dominated uh, spectrum. 
who has been inserted or imposed these ideas against our way of thinking. Perhaps what is your recommendation of women scholars to speak up? What should, where should they start? Yeah, well, it, I mean, it's not easy. But, you know, even like Imam Khomeini, who maybe we think some people don't like him, but he said rights are to be taken. So our rights are to be taken and therefore we have to fight for them. It's not like anyone's going to give us on a plate and uh, centuries and centuries and centuries of misunderstanding women. So we have to take our rights. How do we take them? Okay, we take by voting. Then, of course, you have this idea that, well, you can only vote for these people. Well, talk to them. Try to explain to them. Try to, uh, you know, um, explain that this can't be. They have mothers. They have sisters. They have daughters. They don't feel that way about them. So why would they be willing to continue to say this? I, I have found most men, even with when I translate the Quran and in verse 434, which has some people have interpreted to mean husbands should beat their wives. And I found that it has 26 meanings. And so why are we going with that meaning? The husband should go away and let the situation subside and then come back together and talk with each other. And I found most men agreed with me and even some women in the Arab world disagreed with me. So it's not a gender issue. It's a human rights issue. And we should take it out of gender into human rights. Mm -hmm. And how we do that? How do we do that? We do it through writing. We do it through talking. We do it through explaining. We do it through, you know, one on one. Everyone who is married uh, to some a scholar of some sort, talk to them. Ask them to explain this to them. Uh, ask, ask them to explain to them what it is. So, so you know, how would you be if, feel if your daughter was treated this way? If someone said this about your daughter? And you'll find that they would agree with you. They're just kind of carrying on the same thing, you know, like an unconscious kind of statement kind of thing. Yeah. I, yeah, so we are talking with uh, Lale Bakhtiar. She is the prolific author and translator editor of uh, so many books. So if you um, search her name on Amazon's author's page, you will find more than 250 books under her authorship. So I want to share you a personal story. And then I have a confession. And okay. I'm going to ask your opinion. I read a lot of, I, I read books. I love books. One day I just uh, hit me in my head, hit me that I am reading so many books and I have ever, never read Quran in my lifetime. It was about 10 years ago. So then I thought, decided, okay, so for just the sake of reading the book and this silly, stupid book I was thinking in my mind, just read and see what's saying it just for the sake of reading it. And honestly, I started reading Quran like a novel. It was just, you know, it's just a book. I'm going to read it. It's a novel. That's okay. We're going to... I mean, it's unbelievable, Lale. I mean, after I, I started from the beginning and then towards um, probably half of the book, I was just blown away. Yeah, absolutely. The text was so beautiful. Yes, yes. And I was so mad at myself that why didn't I read the text earlier? Why I was so much questioning what this mullahs I mean, put in my head of hating the book so much. Right. So what, what does this 
book has really that uh, drives attention and and captures captures our thoughts and our our souls probably yes well i'm it's uh, thank you for sharing that was a beautiful experience and that's happened to many people that i've spoken to who are kind of uh, avoid it you know trying to not to read it because of bad information they received as children or from you know schools and so forth and so on but once you immerse yourself in it and as i said i'm glad it worked for you to go from beginning to end but you don't have to do that because it's based on the longest suras and then and based on length so and it's not based on how it was revealed so it's a, it's very important to just own it and take it on and yes there are verses you may not agree with but Look at the ones you do agree with, and then you can later go back and understand the ones that you don't agree with. But it's so beautiful. When you talk about peace and love, it is full of love. How you love your family, how you love your kin, how you love God, how you love each other, how you love your children, how you love animals and the whole world of creation. It's, it's, it's really full of love and peace. So, Lale, I want us to talk about um, Sufism. I know that um, you you are Sufi yourself. You've studied Sufism and you studied um, many aspects of Sufism. So, tell me about the chart that you created. Uh, oh, in the Sufi Enneagram. I started researching the origins of it, and I found the that the Sufis had integrated the knowledge of the Enneagram uh, into their own point of view and that the man who discovered the had spoken to the Sufis in Central Asia whose name was Gurdjieff had because of the Russian Revolution in 1917 had to flee to Paris and he took this idea with him to Paris and so from there it spread throughout the world but the origins of it were the Sufis so when I did the research the origins of it actually come in the science of ethics and it's based on more healing and becoming a fair and just person. This is the goal of the uh, Enneagram. So when you see the diagram with the nine points on the surface, on the circumference, the zero point in the center is a fair and just person. And the idea is to take the cardinal virtues, which in the Western world are, um, they say that Plato discovered these four virtues of wisdom, temperance, courage, and justice. But if you read one of Plato's dialogues with Socrates called Alcibiades One, where, he's, where Socrates is speaking to a, a Greek general, he says, well, if you want to know how to train your children, you should learn from the Persians, who were at that time Zoroastrian, who have, in order to train their sons, they have a, a, per, a person who is an expert, a tutor, expert in courage, one expert in wisdom, one expert in temperance, and one as expert in justice. So they come from the Zoroastrian tradition, these four cardinal virtues. And the idea is to the nine points on the circumference are negative traits like a jealousy, inappropriate anger or lust and so forth. And so you try to bring yourself through, there's a line in the middle called the line of the spirit. Through the line of the spirit, you try to bring yourself to the center point to become a fair and just person. But you can't stand up and say, okay, I'm a fair and just person, vote for me, because you just lost your sense of fairness and justice. Someone else has to confirm it in you to say to you, oh, what you did when you solved that problem was very fair and just. 
So if that happens, then you know that, okay, I've gotten to that point. And all of this is done through reason. You reason with your what's called the animal soul, the nafsa amore, uh, which is our affect and behavior. And you have to change your affect and behavior so that it listens to reason so that you don't go off and, and to an extreme one way or the other. So that's Excellent. the basic structure of the of the Sufi Enneagram. I would love to go on and on and <laughs> learn from you, but we do not have such uh, such time and space. But we can we can learn from it, and we can buy the book, and we can we can read the book. So uh, the, your latest book uh, that we are talking is the earliest commentary upon the Quran according to the fourth rightly guided Caliph Ali ibn Abi Talib. And uh, I was just reading the introduction uh, you sent me. It said that if um, and when the objective is proven, it's, it, it can change the gender studies in Islamic studies, basically. And I, I wanted to see how, uh, in, in what way it can influence gender studies in Islam. Yes. Well, I think, you know, if you, I, I don't say for myself, but if, if you were to read it carefully and someone had the time, and they saw the arguments that I use for why these 12 statements are forgeries and that they were inserted. Then the, when the professors teach it, they would, instead of saying, well, you know, you should hate all men and all men are bad and so forth and so on. They would say, no, someone tried to make them bad. Try, someone tried to make them look bad. Someone tried to denigrate all women. So we have to expunge these 12 from the Najo Balaghe when we're trying to teach it and not put it as, as part of it, but to, you know, maybe in the history of it to say, well, these used to be there, but because they don't support the idea of justice and fairness, they cannot be part of the sayings of a person who was the paragon of justice. For this hour, we are talking with Dr. Lale Bakhtiar. She is a scholar, writer, and she has more than 250 books under her authorship on this the area of Islamic studies. So usually how it goes for our program, I ask my guests if they kindly close the program with something meaningful about peace, kindness, and compassion. And I'm going to leave it to Lale to to, to do it for us. Okay, Laleja. Yes. Well, uh, we know how often the Quran refers to the word that God is merciful, God is compassionate. It begins every of the 114 surah except one. And within that one in chapter nine, it's within the text itself. So, and then also God says, my mercy precedes my wrath. So this is the, the love that a person has for God and the sense of peace that God brings to us. In the Sufi tradition, the idea is to reach contentment so that whatever God wants to do, he, you do. There was a famous, the most famous uh, Sufi saint was a woman. The first Sufi saint was a woman and her name was Rabia. And her family was so poor that they just named her the fourth girl because they already had three girls. So her name was Rabia, the fourth. And she became a great Sufi a mystic. And in her view, she got, she got to the point where, you know, I don't care if God wants to take me to hell after I've tried to do the best I could, or he wants to take me to heaven. I'm not going to worry about it. I am content with God and whatever message that he wants to bring. So this brings us a sense of peace. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much, Lale. Thank and you, thank Sarah. you so much.
Thank you so much for listening. خدا حافظ. خدا حافظ. خدا حافظ. خدا حافظ.